you and Lene have touched on this a little bit in thinking about just motivations around the courts on the right. But on the right, there is an idea that it would be better to pass a piece of legislation that is tailored, maybe almost identical, but tailored a bit state by state. It would be better to pass a reform in 50 states than to pass one giant bill. And so if you have that orientation, of course, you're going to set up this kind of infrastructure that your federally focused counterparts just are not ever going to do. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. A couple of months ago, I spoke with our friend Lene Erickson about the different emphasis Republicans and Democrats have put on federal courts and the infrastructure Republicans have in place to recruit and prepare conservative judges. And in preparing for that conversation, Lucy Caldwell pointed out that there was also a difference in the infrastructure for Democrats and Republicans and how they legislate in state houses around the country. So I wanted to talk to Lucy about some of the behind the scenes structures that Republicans have used to develop laws in states, coordinate their agenda, and pass similar legislation around the country. Joining me today is my good friend and yours, Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. And she has tons of experience working to get legislation passed in state houses across the country. Lucy, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ron. I'm not sure if this is going to be a catharsis or more of a mea culpa. (laughs) Well, before we dig in, why don't you uh, share a bit about the relevant parts of your background so our listeners understand how you came to know so much about this process? Okay, sure. Well, I'll 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 start with with some of my early career, which was spent working at the Goldwater Institute, which is a pretty prominent state-based think tank headquartered in Arizona, but does work all around the country, has a litigation center that is very, very prominent and involved in the American Legislative Exchange Council, which many people know by its shorthand, ALEC, um, very tied into other national groups like the Heritage Foundation and others, and a leading member of the State Policy Network, as well as involved with groups like ATR, but essentially is one part, one cog in the kind of uh, broader wheel and clearinghouse of state-based reforms that get that get spread as developed in think tanks, developed as model legislation, and then get through various mechanisms spread out across the country into state legislatures near you. Let's start with how ideas for laws get generated in the first place. So as uh, opaque and complex as the actual process for getting laws passed can be, I think that the process before a bill actually gets written might even be more opaque. And you and I both know, and our listeners probably know, is you know, bills don't come fully formed out of the heads of legislators. Uh, so why don't we begin with, you know, begin with the beginning. Can you talk about how the bills typically get generated uh, at the state level? Where do the ideas come from? Sure. I mean, of course, this happens on both sides to some degree. I mean, legislation and ideas for legislation does not come out of the heads of legislators on either side of the aisle. Um, But I can certainly speak to the effectiveness on the right of what happens. Um, So I'll speak from my own experience. Groups like the Goldwater Institute, and I can name a few others uh, in other states. In, In Michigan, you have Mackinac, in Texas, you have TPPF. Uh, in Washington, you have the, the 
Freedom Foundation. Uh, in Florida, you have the Foundation for Government Accountability. Those are some of the big ones, but we could go down the line and whatever state you live in, there is some state policy network affiliated group, however effective they are or not. You know, the Idaho Freedom Foundation, you name it, Georgia Public Policy. So in those groups, a lot of those groups are working ostensibly to develop free market-based, small government-focused legislation to then be introduced to lawmakers in their state and also elsewhere. Um, And of course, the way that the sausage is made at those organizations can vary somewhat. Those organizations themselves are getting lobbied by corporate entities all the time. You know, for instance, a Goldwater Institute lobbyist is probably getting requests from, say, the private prison industry to write a piece of model legislation that helps a certain sector of that industry, in part because among the minds of these Republican legislators, the state policy network groups are like church, right? It's like, you know, you go to church and your pastor says, do all these things. This is how we want to live our lives. And then you leave and yeah, you're, you may not do exactly as you kind of aspired to do when you were at the pew receiving communion. Now I'm showing my, my Episcopal background here, but you go every Sunday because you aspire to be that way, right? You're a godly person. And I think especially when I was involved in this, there's a sense that some of these outfits like a Goldwater Institute or like a state policy network, that's the the kind of record of of common agreement that this is the the world that we're trying to live in, right? It's a it's a world where we have extremely small government, right? We have deregulated as much as possible. We have really slashed reliance on public education in its traditional public school form in favor of education savings accounts or charter schools. You can go down the list. Many of them, I should say, are are still reforms I agree with, many of them. But but essentially the 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 it gets a little tricky because these groups who have a certain stature um, are also being asked by corporate interests, other interests to to package those those concepts. Some good, some bad. And there's also a lot of, I think, deal making with the devil because then you bring in other layers like an American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC, ALEC task forces, and you have a whole lot of other types of of corporate interest, lobbying, an exchange of model legislation. And so what ends up being spit out, who knows? But state legislators themselves, many of them are quite reliant on these groups because they trust them. Because it is hard to come up with ideas for original legislation. Um, They too are participating in these entities. And when I was, I've lobbied in over 30 states, mostly on the ground, on behalf of the Goldwater Institute during my time there. And just so people know, some of the issues I was lobbying on were education reform issues, um, something called Right to Try, which grants terminally ill patients access to experimental drugs, stuff I could tell you a whole lot of stuff that a lot of people would think that sounds good, right? Also some stuff people might not agree with, um, public sector union reform, the list goes on. But I was really struck in that time in my life of, of the precise reliance of these legislators. And at one point when I was pushing a bill in Arizona and my bill sponsor was a woman 
who we all know now named Kelly Ward, who's the chair of the Arizona Republican Party and was the one of the core leaders of Stop the Steal. She was a state senator. And I remember, so this is just sort of how bills get introduced. I went to Kelly and I said, Senator Ward, would you please introduce this bill? It had to do with education savings accounts. And she agreed to. And so I went to, I said, I will go to Ledge Council to get a folder opened for you. That's where you go and say, this is the language. Legislative Council. Can you just briefly explain what that is? Yeah, a legislative council in a state legislature, and some may go by different names. We also have this federally. That is the entity that basically writes the bill. You say, and and a, a legislator might say, I want to change this little piece of occupational licensing. Like what I want is for hairdressers to be able to do hair braiding without an additional accreditation. How do we do that? And ledge council would say, okay, here's where it is in the in the code, in the statutes, and these are the changes that need to be made. And and sometimes there might be many places in the revised statutes where they need to be made. And that's actually as an aside, when people complain about the lengths of bills, federally, statewide, or otherwise, it's kind of a stupid complaint because when you make changes in law, there might be a whole bunch of places that you need to make the changes. And what you get, what gets spit back is a multi-hundred page document because they're showing everywhere that changes are being made. It is not the kind of boogeyman that that yeah. Fox News would have you believe. They themselves right. do it. Right. But, but so but this is important. <laughs> this this is a this is people should understand this is a taxpayer-funded, nonpartisan governmental entity that is basically the keeper of the statutory text, right? Yes. So the process is in every state legislature, some it varies a little bit, but a lawmaker gives approval for having a folder be opened. And the folder is open. That basically means this is the draft of the bill. It doesn't mean that the bill has been introduced. It means basically I have an intent, an intention to push this bill. I'm going to introduce it this session, whenever. And if you are, say, as I was, the senior political advisor of the Goldwater Institute, someone like Kelly Ward might just say, could you open the folder? So in that instance, I did. And this is a thing that I did with all kinds of lawmakers all over the country. So in if we want to stick with the Kelly Ward example, I then said, I've had, I've, I've, I've gotten the folder opened. Um, would you like me to walk the bill? And she said that she would like me to walk the bill. And walking the bill means that you are saying to the state legislator, I will go find other people to sign on to this bill. So you're the prime sponsor. You want to get some co-sponsors. And then there are other people who are who are just signing on to the bill. Like, yes, it's a signal that they want to see this bill get legs when session starts or maybe sessions already started, you know walk the bill, get as many people to sign on as as possible, because that's going to guarantee a better committee assignment, more likely that the bill gets heard. Because hundreds of bills in every state legislature die on the on the floor or never make it to the floor, the proverbial cutting room floor every year. And I, I remember in this particular instance, she used this example, walking the bill. And in my mind, it was a non-controversial 
education-focused bill, although other folks would probably say it wasn't at all. And I remember having ending up in kind of a, an issue with Ward's office because there was one step. I needed her to file it. Basically, I'd walked the folder. We had all these co-sponsors. The bill is ready to go. And I basically needed her to then do the final step, which in the Arizona legislature must be done by the member, which is to say, sign off like, yes, all these things that Lucy has been doing, thumbs up, that's that's what I want. And she kept saying, can't you just file it for me? <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, I mean, I didn't know her to, in the way I perceive her now, but I remember thinking, that's really frightening and appalling because yeah. it basically you, the lawmaker, I'm an unelected person. You're elected and you want to just literally take yourself completely out of the process. And, and I remember it's sort of, I was like 20 something at the time thinking like, I have very, very good intentions here, but there are so many other lobbyists who, who have, kind of nefarious intentions. And I don't think she's even read the bill text and she's just trusting me. And I say that because I, it was like a, a experience for me as a young operative of thinking, wow, this is maybe something we should sort of think about culturally. And probably as like listeners are probably thinking, well, like, obviously (laughs) 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 hit your head against a wall. Like, yeah, duh. But But that's how a bill gets introduced. (laughs) Let's let's uh, I want to go back to the work that's being done by outside groups like Alex. So we used this example uh, in uh, this very specific example in Arizona. But I want to zoom out a little bit and have you talk about the work that groups like Alec are doing uh, to connect legislators with the lobbyists and corporations and other interests who are who are pushing their agenda. Right. How do they function? And maybe talk about the importance of the annual meetings and the networking that these groups provide to people. So Alex meetings both annually, and then they usually have a, they have a spring meeting and a winter meeting, they have two to three meetings a year. Um, really what they're bringing together are working groups on various topics that are task forces, they call them, focused on, you know, say energy or education or you, you name it. And those task forces throughout the year, Alec has staff that manage those task forces. And throughout the year, those task forces bring together working groups of lawmakers, um, corporate lobbyists, uh, representatives of think tanks like, say, Mackinac or Texas Public Policy Foundation, SPN member groups to introduce ideas that they then vote on at these meetings Um, that are pieces of legislation. And so when you go to an ALEC meeting, there's the task force component, which is essentially the task force meeting and deciding whether or not to hear and approve of a piece of legislation um, that then becomes part of the library of ALEC bills. But it's also an opportunity to bring all these state legislators together in one place to lobby them. And they're able to pay for their trips to ALEC out of their constituent services accounts. Um, I mean, taxpayers are paying for them to go to ALEC. Mm -hmm. They're not, trust me, state legislators 
do not shell out for anything. <laughs> um, there are sometimes there are there are scholar Alex scholarships, uh, and while they're there, it's an incredible chance to to lobby Alec members to lobby legislators if you are looking to push a bill in their state. So, for instance, I at an Alec meeting in probably. 20 between 2010 and 2012 or in those in that time frame I got to know a then Indiana state legislator named Jim Banks who's now a member of Congress who has become like a big time election truther but I took Jim Banks you know to coffee and schmoozed Jim Banks and asked him to introduce a bill in Indiana to do with uh how union organizing elections get certified. And he did. And, and he's one example. I mean, understand also, these are not random people. There are, there have been dozens and dozens of ALEC members who are state legislators who go on to be in Congress or go on to be governors. Um, And so the ALEC meeting in and of itself becomes this kind of clearing house of, of activity around it. That, that brings together not only corporate interests but also and state legislators, but also the some of the representatives of of say grass tops groups, uh, you know Americans for Tax Reform and others, and they're meeting frequently and working together in between, in a way that is quite unique and and I have to say probably does not have a, a an analog on the left. So we'll talk about the Americans for Tax Reform, ATR, their legendary Wednesday meeting. We'll do that on a plus segment when we're done here. But I wonder if it's fair to uh, characterize this network of organizations and the function that they serve as maybe having arisen out of, um, out of a commitment to a shared set of principles and then later as it became more mature, uh, you know, sort of was co-opted by corporate interests and lobbyists. Is that, do you think that's an accurate way to describe the evolution or do you see it differently? Well, it's really no secret that ALEC, which was started, I think in the seventies, came out of conservatives coming together and thinking, how are we going to recover from the terrible defeat that Barry Goldwater has suffered? And there were Hmm. some issues at that time that had cropped up. Um, issues like the 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 growth of the EPA and thinking about price controls and regulation around energy, that really is the crux of the Alec origin story. Um, and so so it was the, the motives were specific. Um, the state policy network, you know, came somewhat later um, as an umbrella group for these state level level think tanks, which are kind of the the mechanism by which you get this work done, right? Alec is like the aspiration, right? We want to have a clearinghouse where we have these state legislators come. SPN is like, okay, how do you affect all of that work in between those meetings, right? You make state think tanks really strong. You make state lawmakers feel like that state think tank is the the beacon of, of where they should be. They have scorecards, so on and so forth. And it really works well on the right because Republicans and conservatives traditionally believe in federalism and they believe in the idea. It's a really natural fit because they believe if you want to have small government or smallish government, 
then it's very understandable that you would want to push reforms via the state legislature. And and so I think unlike on the left, where there's often an idea that we should standardize and have a federal reform, on the right, and, and I think you and Lene have touched on this a little bit in thinking about just motivations around the courts on the right. But on the right, there's an idea that it would be better to pass a single, truly, there is an idea that it would be better to to pass a piece of legislation that is tailored, maybe almost identical, but tailored a bit state by state. It would be better to pass a reform in 50 states than to pass one giant bill. And so if you have that orientation, of course, you're going to set up this kind of infrastructure that your federally focused counterparts just are not ever going to do. Yeah. There's also one other one I I, I want to make sure we mention, which is a it's a uh Christian organization, sort of a, a Christian policy. I can't, do you remember the name of it? They're focused on social issues as opposed to some of the other ones. There are some there are so many, but but you know, there one is um Council on National Policy. That's it. Uh, which is like the Tony Perkins group. And actually, you know, those groups, when I was involved in this work, really were a thorn in my side, although I have attended at least one of their meetings at a very fancy Ritz in Atlanta years ago. But they were a thorn in my side because all of these entities try to do try to work with each other, uh, but they end up making concessions that sometimes even betray the entity's interests themselves. And there's almost no issue on this that I can think of that is more illustrative of this than in the area of education reform, or as we say on the right, school choice. So, for instance, in the around 2010, the Goldwater Institute, and I know I keep referencing Goldwater, but Goldwater is really one of the preeminent state think tanks. So a lot of legislation that you would recognize in your state comes from Goldwater, although I also have a bias. But Goldwater developed a reform called education savings accounts. And it is has turned out to be a complete disaster. So I regret my role in helping to in helping to promote ESAs. And in fact, a couple of former colleagues of mine have become so convinced that ESAs are damaging that they have not only left the movement, but have doubled down on committing their career lives to fighting ESAs. So education savings oh, accounts. Wow. Yeah. Say more about that. Yeah. So, so education savings accounts is a mechanism to basically uh, find a way to make school vouchers legal again. So for people who know the history of school vouchers, school vouchers were deemed unconstitutional in a whole bunch of places because of something called the Blaine Amendment. And the Blaine Amendment is a provision in state constitutions, in 30-something, dozens and dozens of state constitutions, that says that no money can from the government can go to a private, uh, a religious entity. So this came from, in, in the 20th century, anti-Catholic sentiment, right, of, of fear that public money would go to Catholic schools. So vouchers were deemed unconstitutional in the vast majority of states, essentially, whether they were in effect or just hypothetical, because a traditional voucher system takes money from the government and it says, okay, this voucher for little Timmy 
is going to now, we're just going to send the money to St. Mary's, you know, day school or whatever. And, and so that was deemed unconstitutional because that's a direct transfer of money from government to a religious entity, a private, private. And so with education savings accounts, which were the solution to how to get around this, because members of these movements want to see a reduction in the power and influence of public schools, and they want to see children having expanded educational opportunities beyond public schools. The the ESA, Education Savings Account, was designed to take that money that would be spent on a child, and rather than transferring it to a private school, which you'd run into the Blaine Amendment issue, you would transfer that money to the family, and the family would then reallocate the money to a private school or to something else, maybe to homeschooling. I mean, it's almost all public. It's almost all private schools, but- But they could, in theory, take it to a public school if they wanted to. No, they could oh. uh, because it's the money. It, it varies a little by state. There are now many states that have ESAs, but it's the, and and important not to confuse the term education savings account ESA in this format with tax tax savings plans in some places called education savings accounts. These are distinct from that. So- in, in the in the traditional ESA format, which is now more than a decade old, the money that would be spent on a child in public school, however many thousand dollars, the state portion of that money goes to the family and the family then can spend it on schools, private schools, online schooling, homeschooling, which seems kind of ridiculous, but you name it. And in a lot of places, almost everyone is eligible. All kids, they're universally eligible. But in Arizona and in other states, when these first Arizona was the first state where these went into effect, the deal that became made with obviously the local Christian think tank, and just like just like their state policy network groups in every state, all of these Christian organizing umbrellas also have an entity in every state, right? And they all get together and <laughs> and push legislation, and then those groups work together on the ground. The the Christian lobby, as this piece of legislation was getting introduced, they were really, really opposed to testing provisions. So they didn't want to have any testing of children with ESAs. And so at the time, and I was working on this at Goldwater at the time, we made a decision. They were going to legislators and lobbying to lobbying to say, like, we don't want to have any testing. And and we were going to give you a bad score on our scorecard if you keep testing provisions in this bill, in this model legislation, this legislation. And we made a decision, we'll get testing next year. And it is truly like a, uh, a I mean, it wasn't my decision, but it's, it was early in my career. It is a decision that ha- it really haunts me because guess what? They never put testing into mm-hmm. into that bill. And it has been implemented all over with various amounts of testing or not. But these kinds of deals with the devil that happen as as, as pieces of legislation get made with very little oversight because people don't pay attention to what's going on in their state legislatures because we're all focused on what's happening federally. You know, this terrible program began where money is redirected from the government to families to spend on 
just horrendous schools, horrendous decision-making in terms of how the money is allocated, what the hell these kids are getting in many cases, who knows, and no transparency over whether the program is working on whether- no standards. No standards, (laughs) no standards. (laughs) Yeah, that seems to be the really bad part about this or the worst part about this, the no no standards. Totally. So you said this originated in Arizona, or at least this specific example, but it has been used all over the place. So I want to have you explain to folks a little bit about how these organizations package legislation so that it can be used in different states. Well, that's where Ledge Council comes in, Ron. Okay. <laughs> because essentially, a model bill gets gets written. So, um, so a, a piece of legislation gets written, and by an, uh, you know, say an SPN group, say the Mackinac, the Mackinac uh, Center writes a piece of legislation around public sector union reform, which, by the way, they they did. And all of the all of the um, fury of, of activity, the flurry of activity after the Scott Walker um, era in Wisconsin, you guys remember the Act 10 era and Michigan. That was all being driven by Mackinac, the think tank in in Michigan. So the the organization has, I mean, most of these organizations have lawyers on staff themselves. And they also have, by the way, increasingly, they have litigation centers themselves. And part of the pitch to lawmakers when you ask them to introduce a bill is, don't worry if people say this is unconstitutional because our litigation center is committed to defending the legislation, we will intervene in if there's a if there's a a case against this piece of legislation, and we, and our donors will fund litigation um, defending this bill. And then, by the way, if they win, they also collect they collect fees from taxpayers. But that's another that's for another day. Anyway, <laughs> these a piece of legislation is developed. Um, it is written really, I mean, like a normal piece of text, um, like any typical bill, it's not like they have to go to each, you know, study the code of Idaho to know if it will work there. They get a member of the state legislature to say, yes, I want to draft this bill. I want to put this bill forward. And then a representative of the entity of Mackinac of whatever the Alec corporate player, whoever it is, and and often, by the way, the corporate players are ha- hiding behind the state think tanks, right? Because that's so much. That's just so much more uh, copacetic than like, oh yeah, this is Exxon. <laughs> this is the Exxon lobbyist, right? So th- because there are lawyers not only at these state-based think tanks you know, they then work directly on behalf of the legislator to work like the Kelly Ward story I was telling you about beforehand, to work directly with Ledge Council to make sure that what Ledge Council comes back with will work for them. And so, you know, at Goldwater, we had lawyers on staff who were very involved in the legislative process. And so I was one of our lobbyists. I might get a bill version back and I would take it to our lawyers and say, has Ledge Council stayed true to the spirit of our policy reform here? And they would tell me yes or no. And often the answer was no. We think that we need to go even further and make this or that tweak. And and so there really is at, at every step of the way, there are 
there's someone who's part of this network effect who's there to make sure that the 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 the, the reform continues to move down the funnel. <laughs> so they begin with a template and then each in each individual state that template gets adjusted and tailored specific to maybe what's legal in that state and also the needs of the interests in that state. Yeah. So for instance, um, different lobbies. And when you are lobbying in state legislatures, one of the things you realize is every state is exactly the same and also completely unique. Mm. So you might learn that in some states, the hospital association is just really, really powerful beyond in other states. And that on a healthcare bill, you're going to have to make a concession in Michigan that you didn't have to make in Georgia. Or you might, there may be industry there that that causes problems for you. So that bill I was talking about called Right to Try, the access to experimental medication, you know, that bill was going to have a harder time in New Jersey, where you have a ton of pharmaceutical interests lobbying at the state le- level versus in California. Um, so things do get things do get tailored, um, and then of course also taking into account like the the story I told about earlier about education savings accounts, taking into account specific state state provisions in the in the state constitutions that could cause you to have issues in a bill. Things really arcane things, but that become very familiar to you when you do work in this, like single subject provisions. Um, you know, other other kinds of provisions that pop up in all kinds of state constitutions, but have different implications depending on the issue. What are some of the other key pieces of legislation um, that we've seen successfully move through ALEC and this network of organizations to state legislatures? A huge amount of education reform work, uh, pro-charter school legislation, uh, truly uh, lots of pieces of legislation that a lot of people probably feel pretty good at, about. Uh, one uh, piece of legislation that was, I think, a big ALEC priority during the pandemic was uh, universal recognition reform, which is that if someone moves, if someone is a hairdresser in Kentucky and she moves to Seattle, she doesn't have to get a hairdresser, hair, you know, cosmetology license in 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 Washington in order to continue to pursue her line of work. I mean there are reforms that are that are kind of sensible and reasonable and so a lot of them are you might not agree with them but if we we often talk about how we used to talk about policy reforms and issues things that where reasonable minds could disagree. So, you know, like um and stuff that is kind of boring, but stuff like should a small business be able to write off all of their, like a, a capital investment in a big piece of machinery in the first tax year, or does it have to be spread out over the life of the forklift, right? Stuff where you might think that's bad policy, but it's not, it's not nefarious. There is a lot of stuff that has gone through Alec that has a decidedly different turn. So um, things like, in my mind, private prisons, uh, lobbying to expand private prisons, model legislation that would grow private prisons all over the country, Um, anti-immigration reforms. People remember the famous piece of legislation called SB 1070 in Arizona, which was authored not by anyone in Arizona, but by Chris Kobach, who was 
at that time, uh, a statewide elected official in Kansas, right? That's a, a perfect example of how something could could be in Kansas, make its way to Alec, and then it finds its way in Arizona. Um, Alec was also behind, has been behind a lot of really controversial legislation around gun ownership. And Alec was the was the birth the the birthplace of the um, stand your ground law that George Zimmerman invoked after killing Trayvon Martin. Um, and so, so there's really take your pick. Some of it probably not terribly offensive to people, but some really, really quite challenging to stomach. Okay, so those are some really great examples. We've we've talked about the. I just want to put a fine point on the difference between Alec and organizations like State Policy Network. How do they? How do they? If you could categorize them simply. How do they work together and where do the where do they diverge? Or did they did, or, or at this point are they all just so overlapping and enmeshed that there really isn't a meaningful distinction? I think both. <laughs> <laughs> I think they they are overlapping in ways that are no longer meaningful, but they're really symbiotic. So I think that the state policy network groups really um provide the intellectual cover for a whole range of, of, and, and the kind of the look, we're a think tank, right? These are just Mm. public policy ideas that we're putting forward. And often they are. And I, I want to say the state policy network and their member think tanks, they are full of people who are not making money hand over fist, who really are true. I mean, some of them are, but there are many people in those organizations who are true believers in kind of libertarian conservative vision of of the government right um but and and of how, what our democracy should look like and a system of federalism that they really believe in but i think that you know as you think about how to pursue any of those ends and how to uh, assure outcomes legislatively that's where you start to see an entity like alec which is not only bringing together all of those state legislators on behalf of those groups so that they can connect with with those legislators, but also asking those groups, those state policy network groups, to really, not expressly, but kind of just functionally, to provide cover for corporate interests, for um, you know, tr- uh, uh, aspects of industry where, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot more effective if a energy policy analyst from Texas Public Policy Foundation goes before a state legislative committee and asks for a, an energy dereg legislation than it is if someone from Chevron does, right? And so they they need each other and they they work to they work together, I would say. A couple of weeks ago on a roundup with uh, Liz Gilbert and Eric Cook, two of our uh, democratic strategist friends. I, uh, there was a moment I got, we were talking about, um, we were talking about what happens after votes are counted. And I was expressing my extreme frustration with how Democrats are so focused on national voting rights legislation that they're missing the forest for the trees, in my opinion, which is what happens after votes are counted and the possibility of state legislatures essentially overturning the will of the people in their own states and sending a different slate of electors to DC right, to Washington um, to, to nullify the results of an election. That to me is the most, you know, um, 
that's the biggest risk we have of a national election being overturned. And in a moment of exasperation, I said the Democrats need to fucking embrace federalism. And I want to talk a little bit about what the groups working on state-level coordination uh, look like on the Democratic side, if there are any. Um, And I, I want to spend a little bit of time sort of talking about how Democrats could use this uh, knowledge to their advantage. What kind of an opportunity is there here for them to take the fight to the state level and and whether there are any um, sort of uh, biases against federalism that are holding them back from some really important wins? How do you see that? Well, I think they certainly are missing the boat. And one of the areas where they obviously miss the boat, and it's not directly connected to what you're talking about, but it goes to the general apathy among Democrats about state legislative races, is that they completely miss the boat on redistricting, right? Redistricting in most places, this is your this is your wheelhouse, not mine, but in the vast majority of places, state legislatures still determine the makeup of the next the state legislature for the next 10 years, right? And so failure by Democrats to be on top of figuring out, do we have legislative Democratic majorities in the state legislature means, I mean, you're just, you only have yourselves to blame, frankly. I mean, sort of Democrat power nucleus, right? Because they just don't pay attention to state legislatures. And I think that they're also, in in general, I think, frankly, is there anything that Democrats, can Democrats get organized enough to compete with the infrastructure of the right on voting rights in the next two years? I really don't think that they can. I really don't think that they can. I think that the entire approach by Democrats now should be to stop the bleeding, which unfortunately at this point has to be purely electoral. It has to be, okay, here's the matrix of state legislators. Are these... (laughs) Are these like pro-authoritarian legislators or not? We should be looking at, are there Democrats who are in battleground races that we can help? Are there Republicans who seem friendly to democracy that we can embrace warmly and make sure they stay in office and are not primaried by someone crazy? But I think in general, Democrats, I mean, we couldn't have seen the Trump era coming in many ways, but now that it has come, Certainly, Democrats should be building more infrastructure to to play the long game in the way that that people on the right do. I think that there are a few groups that are often held up as as analogs. There are a couple of groups that actually the left is stronger in. So one area on the left, one group would be BISC, which is the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center. That's a, a strong entity, and they work to push ballot initiatives around the country. But in terms of, is there an analog to ALEC? Maybe NCSL, which is the National Council of State Legislatures, but they are really milquetoast. I mean, they are not effective in that way. They're also extensively nonpartisan. And they are nonpartisan, right. Yeah. And so, so kind of not on that front. There are not, you know, I think it's it's important to to remember as we think about this conversation as a follow-on to the conversation you had with Lene, which was amazing. Everyone should listen to it if they haven't already. The other piece in between what's happening in the courts and what's happening with these state state groups and state interest groups are the litigation centers of these state of these 
landscape think tank. So a, a whole layer of you have every layer covered. You have the the origination of the of the bill, right? And then you have um, covered by lobbyists and these think tanks, the policy shops, and then you have litigation centers that when it gets into the courts where the Federalist Society has done a great job of making sure that because conservatives care about judges and again, shame on Democrats for not paying attention to this. You then see this sort of, it just goes down this funnel where they have entities lined up at every level. And so a lot of groups get thrown out as potential kind of analogs on the left, but usually on the left, when they're trying to get involved in this kind of thing, it's a scramble. And it's usually like the ACLU is like, who do we have in this state who would go testify? I mean, there are there are interest groups like uh, labor unions are probably one of the biggest foes of, of groups like State Policy Network member groups of ALEC. But even they, they're an interest group for something very specific. And so there is just no entity that that matches that kind of machinery's might. And I'm I'm not saying that to make people feel depressed. I'm saying, I mean, it should be depressing. No, but it's the it's, because that's the reality it's, of the it's, landscape. It's the reality. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. So I think a lot of people, especially in the last couple of years, have uh, been really frustrated when they see headlines pop up about things that are happening in state legislatures that seemingly come out of nowhere. But these things don't come out of nowhere. By the time you read about it in the news, you're 10 steps down the road and a lot of work has gone into getting to that point. Totally. I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, we're in the month of January. It's January of 2022. And the vast majority of state legislatures are going to go back into session this month if they haven't already. And what has happened already? It is not like the day that they go back is when this starts to happen. It's already happened. ALEC has its annual meeting where they can convene all of these groups multiple times a year, but they have a meeting every December and they have it somewhere warm often like San Diego. And at that meeting, the purpose of that meeting is to ensure that we are providing, I say we, they are providing tender loving care to these state legislators ahead of the January session. December is when folders are being opened to draft these bills. December is when bills are being walked and co-sponsors are being gotten. And so by the time January comes around, a lot of this is already baked. So it's it's a very finely tuned machine. And I think it, we just come back to the idea that everyone needs to start paying attention to who their state legislators are, pay attention in the in the election cycle and pay attention to what they're doing. And and actually, probably in, in some states, a lot of states have a lot of transparency on their state legislative websites. Go to your state legislature's website or your state assembly, depending on what your state calls it. Go look up who your state legislator is. I would bet most politicology listeners know who they are. And go see what bills they've introduced. Some of those bills may not even have gotten a committee assignment yet, and they probably haven't gotten a hearing yet because a lot of legislatures are just coming back into session, but go see what bills your legislator has introduced and whether or not you feel like they're good. <laughs> Get involved early and often. And then let them know what you think. Yes, and kill the bill before it gets to the floor. <laughs> contact, <laughs> the, contact the chair of the committee that the bill gets assigned to, or contact the Speaker of the House or the 
you know, Senate president of your state Senate and say, I just found, you know, like SB 1234, and this is egregious. And oh, by the way, also reporters who are local reporters, we have a whole other conversation about local news as it relates to this, but local reporters, they don't have a way of efficiently monitoring all of these bills. They're often surprised too. They're understaffed. Newspapers do not allocate nearly enough resources to covering what goes on in state legislatures. Go look at what bills your lawmaker is sponsoring. And if they're sponsoring something egregious, go tell a reporter. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Great advice. I can imagine um, some of our listeners right now thinking, well, it's, but it's more efficient to try and pass legislation at the national level and immediately impact all 50 states, right? Instead of trying to work state by state, especially if your coalition is, you know, a, a, a patchwork, it's a quilt of lots of different interests and groups. And um, I can understand that, but federalism may not be the system that you want, but it is the system that we have. And, and <laughs> this is where have. I get re- It's the system that we have. And so unless you're going to try and uh, change that, which, you know, good luck. um, uh, And and also with Democrats staring down the barrel of not being in power at the federal level for a very long time after these coming midterms, most likely, um, uh, they're like they have a 50 vote majority in like a, a, a like 50, 50 in this. They barely have majorities, right? At the federal level right now, they can barely get anything done. That power is going to last a very short amount of time. And so it, it just seems to me that you're putting a whole lot of eggs in the national basket and your ability to um, get all of the things that you want done at the federal level while, while completely neglecting the, the the most important opportunities, which are sort of organizing at the state level. But I can understand that with all the differences, the differences between and among groups, it's hard to hold those interests together in a, in a way that, you know, is effective. So if I think understanding all of that, if Democrats are going to try and counter Republicans on the state level, as I'm hoping that they do, what would they need to do? What type of organization, given the nature of the Democratic coalition, would you potentially advise them to construct? How would you go about that if you were, if you were trying to build uh, an organization or a suite of organizations that could go toe-to-toe with Alec at the state level on the Democratic side, how would you go about that? Wow, big, big question. I'm excited that we're going to solve this on politicology. I think <laughs> we're not going to um, solve it, but but a, a lot of um, let shall we say influential <laughs> Democrats listen to this podcast, and I I want to give them some food for thought. True, I think. Um, I mean, I would probably start with a few states um, uh, and start with the states that have the narrowest Republican majorities after redistricting. So states and 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 also um, new narrow margins of Democratic majorities. So states where there are thin majorities. And I would begin to um, I would get a bunch of sort of power brokers in the room, and I would ask people from states to come because this is another thing that Democrats do, which is that they snub their noses at people in states. There's a real beltway bias and the idea that the work happening in the states 
is not important and that it's not, it is sort of lesser than, that it's a lower status of, of work, even though it's the, the work that impacts the vast majority of people's lives. I mean, what makes living in, in Tennessee different from living in Oregon is not anything happening federally. It's about what's going on in state legislatures. So, you know, I would try to establish a a handful of policy reforms that are liberal, but that would be really popular. And I would set about in those states with, with getting those passed. And I would do it in states with narrow majorities because I would want to show that this entity can be a, a, a game changer, like a force multiplier in getting a reform passed. And I would make sure I might try to have a mixture of states. Maybe I would have some states with a Democratic governor, some states with a, a Republican governor, but who's who's kind of friendly, right? Like a you know the kind of like Phil Scott, Charlie Baker mold in in one of those states. And then I would, after a cycle of doing that, try I would go to a funder. I would start going to the <clears throat> funders of democratic electoral politics and say, you need to start funding legislative activism. Um, I actually think there's a huge opportunity on the left now because Republicans have done such a fantastic job of of alienating corporate <laughs> corporate sponsors mm, as mm-hmm. we they've decided to make corporations their enemy, that there maybe are some some powerful corporations who might who might be involved in something like this. Or who, even if they're, it's okay. It's so this is another thing Democrats do all the time that people on the right do. Democrats are all about purity tests and they will shoot themselves in the foot for a purity test instead of thinking, what can we, what can we get done? So there may be corporate actors out there who themselves are just looking to have cover to show that they're not authoritarian leaning, right? For the money they gave Josh Hawley last cycle or whatever bring them on board too. As long as you're driving the bus, I think that's fine. And then I would start trying to create case studies of these state legislatures where you can clearly point to that group and and of, of, of pushing the legislation as the, the difference between that piece of that reform getting done or not, and then grow from there. And I would not start with controversial issues. I would not say, I mean, there obviously the left needs to get better organized around say reproductive rights at the state level and i think that will happen naturally pending the outcome of of the supreme court case but there actually are as we've seen in say biff or build back better lots of democratic reforms that may or may not get passed that are really popular we know we have lots of polling on this to show that they're really popular so Figure out which of those things are doable at the state level and affordable at the state level and make those the central tenants, non-controversial, popular reforms, and, and start trying to get them done in an organized way that that starts small. I mean, Alex started small, SPN started small, they've grown dramatically over the years, but you have to start somewhere. That is a great idea especially taking what they're already trying to do at the national level. And if it doesn't get done, you know, by the time they lose the house, I know I keep saying that and people are holding out hope that that's not going to happen. It's going to happen. I hope I'm wrong, but it's not going to happen. Uh, 
um, uh, they need another front to play on. And I think that blueprint you just outlined is brilliant. Part of why, um, part of why this becomes really effective and it becomes like once you on the, in my experience, working with state policy network, Alec, ATR, et cetera, part of it gets easier and easier every state that you get to adopt a reform, because then you say to, uh, a lawmaker in in that state, like, look, we did this in Florida and they're really happy with it, right? And you just, you, it becomes easier and easier to pass it. And I should also add the, the other thing that these state legislators are getting from these groups is a ton of publicity, right? I mean, mm. my background is in comms. I can't tell you the number of state legislators that I got to do something and I arranged press appearances for them. And I, you know, uh, pitched them to national reporters. All of these people want to be in Congress. That is, uh, every state legislator wants to be in higher office, right? And these groups are very effective at pushing them, whereas Democrats don't really promote state legislators. They might, when they do something, if they're having some kind of crazy viral moment, like a Wendy Davis style moment. Wendy Davis, recall, is the woman, the Texas legislator who filibustered years ago over an anti-choice bill. But in general, Democrats don't champion state legislators. Democratic interests don't champion state legislators in the way that folks on the right do. So that that warm embrace, all of this, all of these efforts have to be focused on the warm embrace that you are creating for these state legislators and the idea that what they are buying from you, what they are, what they are getting from you rather, is a lifestyle brand of a, being a kind of lawmaker whose profile will be elevated and who will become more prominent because of the work they're doing with you. And that's that's how they feel throughout the entire funnel of engagement with these groups. Lucy Caldwell, before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. All right, let's go to Politicology Plus. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.